0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's co-host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite,
1: and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm Rahul Chaturvedi, co-host of Biotech 2050. I'm also the founder and CEO of Clora. Clora is a two-sided marketplace where we're organizing and providing access to worldwide life sciences expertise. I'm excited to welcome Paul Billings, Chief Medical Officer and Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs at Natera to the podcast. Paul, appreciate you joining us today.
2: Happy to be with you.
1: So as a starting point, we'd love to just hear about your background and how you got to where you are today.
2: Oh, thanks for asking. grew up in uh, Southern California. My parents were both immigrants. My, both my parents were physicians. My brother was a physician. My uncle, my cousins are all physicians. We come from a big medical family. And studied uh, history in college. I went to Harvard Medical School, did an MD-PhD at Harvard Medical School, worked uh, in immunology with a guy who won the Nobel Prize shortly after I left the lab. Uh, So that was a big event, and I learned a lot about T-cells and the immune system at that time. Trained in internal medicine and then in uh, clinical genetics, At the university of washington which was one of the old bastions of medical genetics in the united states and then went back and did some junior faculty work at harvard came out to california more junior faculty time at at ucsf and at stanford spent a little sojourn as a very senior medical staffer at the va uh, running a big healthcare system for the va and then got the biotech bug when i uh, came back to i had did the va stint in texas came back I had already had one experience in biotech, but really founded my first biotech company in 1999. It was a consumer genetics play, a little bit like 23andMe, but about 10 years earlier. And since then, I've been on the commercial side with, uh, you know, kind of guest appointments in academic. And I had, a, you know, worked at LabCorp as a senior physician at LabCorp. Uh, was the chief medical officer at Life Technologies and Applied Biosystems. Worked as a chief medical officer at Thermo. And then, for the last two and a half years, have been the chief medical officer at Natera. And really, I think the sort of theme there uh, is how does one bring diagnostic technology rapidly to the marketplace, to the benefit of patients, and where it's appropriate, that is, where it's individualized and adds uh, utility to the management of, that, of those patients. That's really the theme of my career. Obviously, I know something about genetics. So I've used genetic technology, uh, and there's been obviously an enormous amount of innovation in my career around uh, being able to detect genetic variation. Mm. So that, that's really been my background, and uh, I've continued to publish a lot, I, I, I believe in scientific <laughs> publication and in in scientific presentation, uh, but I also work very closely with the commercial folks here at Natera. To, make sure that the services and, and information that we provide along with our testing information really benefits both the provider and the patient.
1: And what are you working on now and, and what's the team at Natera working on?
2: So Natera is, I think, arguably the finest cell-free DNA company in the world. We have more experience. We do more cell-free DNA assays than almost anybody in the world. And we do it on mostly on blood. You can measure cell-free DNA in any fluid if you want, but the, the money is in the blood, it, it appears. So we have applied massively multiplex PCR technologies to detect very small amounts of mixtures of DNA in the blood. So the first thing that we did, the company's main line of business, is detecting fetal DNA in, the mater- in a pregnant mother's blood. And so we can, as early as nine weeks, do full genetic analysis of a fetus, and we can tell you whether you're going to have a kid with uh, trisomy 21 or Down syndrome, some of the other chromosome anomalies. We can even tell you if it's going to have a single gene disorder. And we've expanded that to help with twin pregnancies, with preterm or early pregnancies, all sorts of things. And we can help couples also know whether they're at risk for having a, a child with a recessive genetic disorder. So we do carrier testing. As we've gotten very, very good at doing these prenatal tests, and we'll do about a million of them next year. We've looked at other areas to apply the same expertise, our same skill, with this massively multiple PCR and and the lab that's geared up to do this. And So we've looked at on oncology and we've launched an oncology product called Signatera, which is by far uh, the best in class molecular residual disease determination. So people who've had known cancer, who've had a treatment that they think is a definitive and curative, we can assess whether they still have cancer very accurately, much more sensitively than imaging techniques or other clinical techniques, or even proteomic techniques like CEA and uh, CA-125 and other, other PSA, those kinds of markers were much more sensitive than those. And then we can follow therapy afterwards so that we can tell if you're on a personalized therapy, on a chemotherapy, on a targeted therapy on an immuno-oncology drug, we can tell whether that drug is working or not. Mm. And so that's enormously powerful management information for oncology, Uh, and that's also, by the way, having a big impact on pharma trials and on uh, development of new drugs for cancer. Similarly, in the same way that we can detect early fetus in a pregnant mother, we can detect a transplanted organ in a recipient, in an organ graft recipient. And so uh, the most common grafts are kidney grafts Mm -hmm. in the United States, about 20,000 of those are delivered every year. So we can sensitively detect whether a kidney is being rejected and that can be then managed uh, more aggressively by the the transplanting. And the problem is is that almost 50% of all kidneys are lost within 10 years. And people Mm -hmm. with renal failure, Love kidney transplants. They get off their <laughs> dialysis machine, you know, they, it's much easier, you know, they feel our better life, yeah. and all that stuff. But half of them lose their kidney after 10 years. They got to have another transplant or they die or they have to go back on dialysis. Mm. So we started with kidney transplants. Now we're extending our expertise to liver and heart and pancreas and all the other things that we're transplanting clinically. And, you know, it's very exciting. And then we're also going to bring our expertise in management of pregnancy and in cancer to bring to bear on transplant patients who also get pregnant and get cancer (laughs) and are often transplanted because they have cancer and you know and in some cases particularly Mm -hmm. liver cancer Transplantation can be the only curative treatment Mm -hmm. and so uh, it's a it's a wonderful opportunity to bring to bear all our Expertise and knowledge in these complex management. So that's what we're doing. Awesome
0: uh, You know one of the things I'm really curious about is given the the platform nature of the technology you guys have developed How do you guys think about that new? Vertical or indication or domain that you're gonna go after right. uh, given the volume of opportunity out there as well as the breadth of capability that you've developed
2: in right. So, you know, we want to be more than just technology advocates I'm of the belief that appropriate technology is what I want to be about, and I think that's also what Natera wants to be about. So the first step, as far as I'm concerned, is a really a critical and expert-driven assessment of the need in the healthcare system. As an example, in our development of the oncology product, the Signatera product, we hired an absolutely brilliant young oncologist from Stanford. And he helped us focus on a particular issue in colorectal cancer, which, frankly, and I've treated a lot of people with colorectal cancer uh, in my lifetime. I didn't realize it was such a problem, but it's really a problem because if you have stage 2 or th- stage 3 colorectal cancer, it's really unclear after you have it removed surgically who should get further treatment and who should not. And it depends a little bit on where you are in the country. It probably depends a little bit on what your socioeconomic and ethnic group is and, and so forth and so on. But the fact is the guidelines are very unclear. And so we developed... The test and did a, our first trials and we're focusing our first commercial efforts on really shedding light on what the right decision is for stage 2 stage 3 colorectal cancer there are about a million people who could benefit from this uh, on an annual basis so it's a big market in fact we are going to rewrite the guidelines we're already rewriting them outside the united states we're participating in global trials all over the world because this is a you know, colorectal cancer is a big problem. We are identifying colorectal cancer more and more in early stages like stage two and early stage three. So this is increasingly applicable knowledge. So it's, it's an enormously exciting area and we would have probably, maybe we would have gotten there, but the, the fact that we made a very good hire and that he helped us bring in a network of other advisors who are experts and we got clarity about focusing on this particular unmet need and the unmet need, of course, is, has a size, has a total addressable market, has patients and has doctors and drugs, all that. It's just, it's been great. And that's, a, I think, really taught me how important seminal thinking, expert-driven thinking, advice from a broad network outside of your technology focus, how important that can be.
1: Mm-hmm. Given your vast experience now in, in the industry, you guys have already made more progress than most other platform companies where a lot of platform companies fall short is that they never get to the point of fully unlocking that potential of what the technology is. would love to hear your perspective on, you know, team building when you are a platform company and, and just the evolution of thinking at Natera around, you know, this is the first thing we're going to work on. But then here now are seven different things that that right. we want to
2: pursue. Well, I, I think that Natera has been very focused, so unusually focused. So the founder, Matt Rabinowitz, you know, he actually came from a completely different scientific discipline. He wasn't a molecular biologist at all. And he was driven, actually, largely by a, a family situation mm. where he had someone in his family who'd had a, a genetic issue, and he, he began to think that there's got to be better technology, there's got to be a better way to answer the questions and, and avoid family situations mm. like he dealt with. What he then did is started collaborating with absolutely expert people in PCR. Mm-hmm. And, you know, PCR is a fairly broadly available technique. I mean, it, you know, it's been around for a while, there have been... In fact, the you know discoverer of PCR recently died, Gary Mullis. You know, it's already had its it, one sort of cycle of, of scientific and historic development. But we hired a really expert team, and we stayed focused. And, you know, from sample collection to library prep to multiplex to choosing your targets, and then to all the back-end bioinformatics, signal to noise. And, you know, but we do tens of thousands of SNPs in a single tube. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not like, I mean, we, we, uh, the guy who invented this at Natera actually recently told me that he was remembering when he first published, he could do 10,000 SNPs in a single reaction, and he could you know, discern them mm-hmm. accurately, and what a, that no one believed him. You know, that he had to fight his way and, you know, with all the disbelievers and, you know, now we have a, a clinical assay which is highly regulated, you know, we're New York State approved and we're this approved and we're that. And, you know, it works every dang time. Mm-hmm. We, we have an amazing call rate. But we continue and innovate. I mean, for instance, we're innovating with sample handling, we're innovating with library prep innovating with new forms of artificial intelligence, looking at the data, which we think will even improve the efficiency and the the, uh, rate of accurate calls even better. Mm -hmm. So it's really been about targeting and staying true. Once you've developed and understood all the capability of your technology, of, of being able to measure something in a mixture very precisely, then you ask yourself, well, what other mixtures are there out there either the same you know, blood, in, our, in mm-hmm. our case, but you could look in urine, you could look in cerebrospinal fluid, you can look in saliva. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of other fluids you could examine mm-hmm. uh, if you wanted. Uh, and you, you want to ask, you know, is there some advantage to look in th- at that? And are there disorders and unmet needs which, which could be better addressed that mm-hmm. way? You know, you, You're, you're going to need companion technologies. I mean, we're primarily a DNA company at this point. And we do, you know, very fine genetic analysis, DNA analysis, but we're going to obviously develop expertise in RNA and epigenomics and then integrating with algorithms that use clinical factors and protein factors and other things. We're going to have to, that will come, Mm. but we're right now focusing on what we're really good at.
0: In that context, like as you start to see the scope of development from an R&D perspective expand beyond the traditional confines of biotechnology and engineering, but into data science, Mm -hmm. computing, et cetera. Obviously, being here in Silicon Valley, you've got uh, a little bit of a geographic advantage and be able to bring those people in, but you do have to compete with the Facebooks, the Googles, uh, even the Illuminas of the world, right? Right. How have you guys sort of approached that aspect of the problem, given the demand for such talent
2: globally? It's a very big problem. I mean, one of the things we've done is open up a, a new laboratory in Austin, Texas. Hmm. Instead of fighting with the, the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, you know, and Google has been smart enough to also move to Austin, Texas, too, right? <laughs> so, but, you know, we've, so we've looked for areas where there are maybe uh, it's less trafficked, looked for sources of talent. In other communities, and, and and frankly, we've also outsourced some of our functions, as many people have done uh, offshore. So so that's one strategy we've used. But you know, frankly, we're a healthcare company. While we pride ourselves on the quality of the information we deliver to the healthcare system, and you know, and part of the reason that I like being an employee of Nutera is that I feel like I have a significant input onto what we target on this powerful information gathering method that we have, and I'm all about clinical care, I'm all about individualizing care. So uh, I think we attract people, one, because we're in the right place, and two, we're about health and Mm -hmm. about making medical management better, and that's still a very attractive Ethical draw, I feel like, moral draw. Sounds like the
0: the mission of of, of, of healthcare versus, uh, say, making advertising a little bit more efficient. Yeah, exactly.
2: (laughs) And you know, one other thing I just thought I I, I should mention, I've been practicing medicine for a long time. I graduated medical school in 1979. There's a lot of traditional information that's generated and traditional interactions in the immune system, which are not very accurate and are based on older technologies which had their limitations in some sense. And so we're replacing older style information with more uh, reproducible, accurate, molecular information. Mm -hmm. Uh, Obviously uh, in the last 20 or 30 years the amount of genetic information about patients and about healthy people and about families grown enormously and the reliability of that information has gotten uh, much better, reproducibility of that information. And that's a really important transition. It makes what we know more rigorous, more reproducible, more more reliable, not so much expert-driven, you know, the classic idea. My, my uncle was, uh, was from Vienna, he was a pathologist, and he spent his whole life looking through microscopes at livers, and, you know, was the discoverer, really, of many hepa- types of hepatitis, which he became very famous for. But, you know, it was all about his eyes and his knowledge, right? And, it, and now we can do mu- much of what he did with you know, probes and and molecular reactions and PCR and sequencing and things like that, and so it's much more reproducible. It's much more available to the world. Mm-hmm. You know, he was a single guy, and now it's out there and wrote books, mm-hmm. but now you know the technology is more de- democratized and out in the world, and it's really the overall quality is getting better.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So on that point, yeah. you know, we, we've obviously made. Uh, significant headway in terms of application of technology and efficiencies and a lot of what we do in in, across the life sciences sure where are areas where you think that there's still a little or perhaps a lot of inefficiency as it relates to to clinical development
2: well I I certainly feel like clinical trials can be improved and by that I mean what one considers to be acceptable evidence and how that evidence is gathered what are uh, surrogate or intermediate endpoints which are uh, acceptable for regulatory approval for inclusion in this in the system for payment Mm -hmm. and mostly you know changes in guidelines Mm -hmm. let me give you an example we are in the business of using pcr to do non-invasive prenatal testing so as i said as early as nine weeks we can measure fetal dna in the maternal circulation and we can make very accurate calls about uh, whether that is a trisomy 21-bearing pregnancy or other kinds of aneuploid, chromosomal anomalous pregnancy. Mm. And that's you know completely up to the mother and the family as to whether they want that information, what they're to do with that information, assuming that there are options that, that are main options in the United States for handling that mm. information. There are competing technologies. There are serum technologies that have been in place in the public health system, largely for the last 20 or 30 years and there are downstream technologies that involve amniocentesis the direct sampling of the amniotic fluid and, and uh, sometimes and there's intermediate technologies called chorionic villus sampling which the point is non-invasive prenatal testing is incredibly accurate incredible the, the false positive and false negative rates are just mind-bogglingly good and there've been millions of patients looked at mm. and large, large studies done mm-hmm. about how accurate this is, and yet the availability of that technology to enter the guidelines and to be paid for by some of the biggest payers in the United States has been very slow. Mm-hmm. And that's has to do with expectations about levels of MS. It has to do with traditions and payment and how people have organized uh, healthcare delivery in, in pregnancy and so forth and so on. I feel like When a a technology has reached a certain critical level of proof, then it becomes a moral issue that you don't provide people with the best in class technology. I I, I think it's wrong, and it's certainly wrong in as as wealthy and as smart a country as the United States to deprive average-risk women, which is what we're really talking about. The high-risk women generally get these Mm -hmm. technologies, but I'm talking about the average-risk women who wants access to this, the fact that they can't easily get access to it in many situations is wrong mm-hmm. and there are many other examples in the system where uh, either because of where you get sick or your ethnic or socioeconomic background or other factors yeah. you just don't have access to best in class technology obviously people you know outside the United States in poorer countries don't have it and that's of course a, an impetus to create more economically accessible mm-hmm. better medical technologies mm-hmm. uh, but these are you know how we prove it and then how we translate it and get it adopted yeah we need reform in yeah. that and i don't have any simple answers mm-hmm. i i think i think you hope that's the better scientific evidence and faster accumulation of that evidence will take care of it but uh, that's only one solution yeah
1: um, has the natera technology been used in clinical trials for patient enrichment? Or is that something that you're thinking? Indeed. Yeah.
2: So in particular, in our oncology space, but we you can conceive of if you were interested in, for instance, studying twin pregnancies. Yeah. So there's an example, I'll, I'll give you two examples. So if you're interested in studying twin pregnancies, our technology can tell you the, the chorionicity, the, the zygosity, and the sex of twin pregnancies, they can tell you whether you have a monozygotic or a dizygotic twin. Well, Monozygotic twins have certain kinds of complications. They, they often share circulatory systems, mm-hmm. and that can affect the growth of one or both of mm-hmm. the twins. So if you wanted to study, enrich a study, for the presence of monozygotic twins, because you were interested in, where should you deliver a monozygotic? Should they, be, can they be delivered out in that by a, a, a family practitioner out in the hinterland, or should they go to a high-risk center? Mm-hmm. For instance, you could study that and enrich that population very easily with our technology. Mm -hmm. Similarly, in oncology, because we are so sensitive, a determiner of minimal residual, or I like to call it molecular residual disease, we can tell you after a treatment course or after a curative intervention, we can tell you who still has micrometastatic disease, where you can't detect it by imaging, Mm. you can't detect it by any other clinical method, you can only detect it by our method, or who does not. And of course, in a clinical trial where you're, let's say, looking at the next type of therapy after first-round treatment fails, you want to enrich your trial for people with micrometastatic disease because they're going to have a recurrence sooner than if you add everybody because all the people who are negative are never going to have it, so you're going to have to wait. And and so we can provide that evidence. And in fact, what we're finding is that there are large clinical trial groups who want to enrich their tumor populations for known people who are going to recur. And then they're going to try all sorts of early drug compounds. You know, we're talking about phase one or early phase two type trials to see. And they're going to get a signal. And then what they're going to do is if the tumor in that goes down with that phase one or phase two, they'll follow that up, but if they don't get any effect, they'll probably kill uh, the development. Now, we'll have to see how important that is in how how much that reduces the cost of drug development or speeds, one phase three or or, uh, phase four kinds of releases. But the bottom line is it's an improvement yeah. and it will, it will allow faster, less expensive trials.
1: Yeah, I think you know, going back to the efficiencies or more so inefficiencies in clinical development, one of the things where I think there's a lot of dead drugs could be you know doing something like responder, non-responder analyses using exactly. some of the technology that exactly. you all are working on to see how to identify patient drug fit in particular aspects. So, yeah, exactly. that's great. That's great.
0: So, you know, I think the, maybe the last topic here that we can cover off is, I think, one that it sounds like you're particularly passionate about, which is this: the intersection between sort of immunology and the immune system right. and general health, right. right? We'd love to learn a little bit more, obviously, you know, being an immunologist, sort of your experience in that topic, as well as sort of what you see for the future of the discipline, especially today, given how popular immuno-oncology, as an example, is.
2: Right. Well, we're really, you know, in my view, at the beginning of understanding how to assess the immune system, then how to use those assessments, one, to predict who's going to be ill, who's not going to be ill, or the severity of the illness, and, you know, frankly, whether uh, the immune system uh, will be effective in controlling disease and in potentially eliminating disease, uh, or whether we're going to have to supplement it with targeted therapies or other more traditional therapies or whatever. So we're, at, we're very much at the beginning. You know, when I started my career, uh, as I told you, I did... Immunology research. I have a PhD in immunology. I actually did, in, as an undergraduate, I, I, I did immunology research at the Salk Institute in San Diego, and you know we were just learning about what cells were involved. <laughs> you know, and with B cells were just an immunoglobulin on the as the receptor on B cells and as what the B cells produced and secreted into the into the immune system or into the into the body. Which has been identified disorders of B cells. You know, whether it would be myeloma or some of the autoimmune diseases had just been kind of identified and then the whole world of T-cells and the regulatory role of T-cells and And then macrophages and dendritic cells and NK cells and all the all the ways that the immune system has complicated Has been complicated since I became an immunologist. It's amazing mm-hmm. and you know, it's, it's actually rather gratifying that now I'm in a company where we have a a method of assessing injury that's partially caused or maybe solely caused by, uh, in some cases, by the immune response to a transplanted organ. And our test, for instance, uh, is uniquely capable of detecting B cell responses to transplanted organs as well as T cell responses. So one of the things that distinguishes our test is that we can tell cell mediated immunity early on in a graph uh, rejection scenario. And in my training that I learned that when T cells get activated, they promote the function of other T cells, which kill, uh, become cytolytic, and, but also B cells, which produce antibody, which then you know, give you antibody-mediated rejection. So the fact that our test is sensitive to T cell activation and to T cell effect mm. is fantastic. So what I think is, is happening, and uh, I'm involved in, in some other projects which uh, will lead, I think, to this, is that we will uh, develop not only sensitive measures of the effect of the immune system, like cell-free DNA in, the, in, in the circulation is a, can be a, a marker for cell-mediated or antibody-mediated immune system activity in the, in the body, uh, but we're also going to develop better... Assessments of the number of cells that have been activated, the kinds of cytokines and lymphokines, and other kinds of things that the that the immune system spurts out, and we're going to develop a whole kind of uh, assessment of a person's the status of a person's immune system during their healthy times, and then as as they get ill, and obviously your microbiome and bacteria in your gut are putting into your system. That's going to play some role. And, uh, and it doesn't have to be your gut. It can be in your uh, respiratory tract. It can be uh, in other parts of your body. These will all modulate your immune system. And you have genes, by the way. Uh, hundreds, there are hundreds of genes that have been described which have an impact on people's immune system. We don't have very good tools to assess that. We can mm. actually assess the mutations pretty well. But whether you uh, have a big effect from those mutations or a slight effect, still at the, in its infancy. I believe that we're going to have kind of an immune scorecard for disease and that that will have multiple assessments of that and that we'll, at the same time, we'll look for drugs that target a disease specifically, the mutations or the underlying pathology of that disease, but we'll also try to enhance the immune system's role or in autoimmune diseases where the immune system is the inciting event to the disease. Maybe we'll decrease the immune system's role, but we'll, of course, want to do it in such a way that we decrease its pathological effect, while retaining its ability to survey against cancer or survey against infections, or survey against all the other things that the immune system does that we like. So we're just at the beginning of this, and you know, the success of immuno-oncology uh, recently really speaks to it, because, you know, we know that 20 or 30 percent of people uh, who have certain kinds of cancers, let's say, melanoma, or certain kinds of lung cancer. They respond, and they have fantastic responses when you give them immuno-oncology drugs. But that means that 70% of people don't. So Natera can help identify who's responding and who's not. But what we really want to know is how do we help the other 70% who don't have a long-term durable response. Uh, There may be other immuno-oncology ways to do it. I mean, it's clear the immune system can do it, right, because it does it in those 20 or 30% so how do we unlock the immune system's ability to do it in the other 70%? One
0: quick thing that I wanted to follow up on is use this interesting word that, maybe intentionally or not, which is the word scorecard, which elicits the notion of metrics, dashboarding, continuous monitoring of data sets that, to your earlier point, historically haven't been part of the diagnostic mix. Are providers especially ready for that deluge of data or even the continuous aspect? And what does that mean for the broader healthcare ecosystem? No,
2: I I certainly... Most providers are not. I mean, I used, to have a, I used to give a talk when I was at Life Technologies, when I was the CMO, and we were a big sequencing company and did a lot of other things. I had a, a, a picture in my deck where there was a doctor sitting in front of three big screens, and yeah. there was genomics on one screen and you know RNA on the other screen and protein. And, like and, a Bloomberg you know, terminal a, for... Exactly, yeah. an Uber terminal, and, then, you know, and there was AI hovering above him you know, actually running through, and, and yeah. there were data sets, you know, pulling in data sets from all over the world that he could compare whatever he was looking at on the screen. None of that exists in any practical sense. We're, we're, we're sort of on the road to that in oncology, right, where we're already, you know, there are large systems that are collecting their experience with all sorts of types of tumors and sequencing them, and some of them are doing RNA analysis on, on those tumors or on the blood from people with those tumors. And some of that, you know, we're getting fairly sophisticated, complex data sets for a lot. And there are companies that are, that that's their business model to collect that data and make it available. But if you're saying, you know, is the average physician uh, ready and has the tools to really do this? No. There's a, a group of people who believe that, you know, computers will be the first and second cut, and that they will deliver a more digested product or even the scorecard to the practicing physician. So I'm not sure that's going to be a solution yet. I always believe, and I'm not yet ready to suspend this belief, that in the end it will be an interaction in a closed room, in a consulting room between a doctor and a patient Mm. as to what is appropriate for that patient at that stage in their lives with whatever their family situation and and medical situation. Mm and hopefully it will be a shared decision between an informed patient and a capable and informed physician and that that the ability to have those discussions and the quality of the information shared in those discussions will continue to get better and better across the country and across the world that's my wish <laughs> uh, we're a long way from that you know i hope that natera for instance will continue to be a quality best-in-class provider of some data that's useful for some of those questions that are asked in that consulting room.
1: Paul, you've, you've already had quite an inspirational career. For some of our listeners that, let's say, are finishing up medical school or have just recently finished their PhDs, what would you like to share with them about going into the life sciences industry and determining whether that's the right fit for them or not?
2: What I would say is, first of all, it is an adventure. I never thought when I went into medical school that I would have had as many jobs as I have. You know, I've worked in healthcare systems, I've I've worked in academic situations and been a professor, I've published a lot, and I've worked in industry now. Uh, and I've worked in different kinds of industry. And that's a great luck in many ways. It's there's been a great deal of variety. I've had a lot of really interesting projects to work on, and I've seen fields like Medical genetics really mature from a backwater pediatric, you know, discipline which nobody, you know, it was all about funny-looking kids. Really, when I started, to mainstream medicine and oncology and and primary care and mm-hmm. and, and all of obstetric and gynecology, really influenced uh, by these technologies. So I, I and by this information, I would say to to people going in, follow your heart. You know. Uh, uh, if you're a person who likes to dig very deep, then dig very deep and bring to bear all sorts of different kinds of, mm. of information on a, on a subject. If you're someone who likes to move around and have different kinds of, uh, then get yourself um, the skills and the knowledge base so that you can apply uh, your viewpoint to because there's so many unmet uh, areas of unmet need in, mm. in, in medicine. There's lots of, lots of room for better data and better information. We need policies, translating technologies from first world to third world and and learning from third world and bringing it back to first world, Uh, still a wide open area. So uh, it's a wonderful opportunity to do research in the life sciences. We have new tools that make lots of questions addressable that never were. Uh, It's still a wonderful uh, profession to be able to be a a physician, to be able to talk to people intimately about their health uh, and to help them in many cases. Find what your taste is. There are lots of different ways of doing it, and then follow your heart.
0: Well, you know, with that, Paul, we want to thank you for uh, joining us uh, on the podcast today, and I'm uh, really excited to maybe uh, regroup in the next couple months or in a year or so to see what new uh, domains Natar has moved I'm into.
2: Happy for you to come anytime. It's been great. <laughs> That's been fun talking to you. Thank, thank you thanks, so Paul. much.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Rahul Chaturvedi, and Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.